Hello, and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks questions of Colgate community members. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming to the program Associate Professor of History, Dan Bauck. Bauck is also the chair of the history department at Colgate, and he has just published his latest book that digs deep into the history of the U.S. Census, and in particular, the 1940 Census. His author bio reads that Bauck researches the history of bureaucracies, quantification, and other modern things shrouded in cloaks of boringness. Bauck studied computational mathematics as an undergraduate at Michigan State before earning his Ph.D. in history from Princeton University. His work investigates the ways that corporations, states, and the experts they employ have used, abused, made, and remade the categories that structure our daily experiences of being human. His first book, published in 2015, was How Our Days Became Numbered, Risk and the Rise of the Statistical Individual. And that work explored the spread into ordinary Americans' lives of the United States life insurance industry's methods for quantifying people, for discriminating by race, for justifying inequality, and for thinking statistically. And his newest work, Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census and How to Read Them, was published in August and has since been featured in the pages of the New York Times, Wired Magazine, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and more. Professor Belk, welcome to 13. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to, that you allowed another Dan to share this space with you. <laughs> it's rare, but, you know, we have to make exceptions every now and again. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested in, I guess, data, really, like digging into giant data sets? So one way to answer this, I could go back very deep into my biography, and I could say that my father was a research scientist at Kodak, at Eastman Kodak. I grew up outside of Rochester, New York. And so I grew up with him spending his evenings reading physics books and talking to me about eigenvalues that I faintly understood. And simultaneously, when I was uh, in middle school, my mom went back to college. She got a undergraduate degree and then a master's degree in creative writing and started teaching as an adjunct and eventually worked her way into a full position at a community college teaching English. And so so one way to, to I can understand myself is, is this joint product of the humanities and the sciences in my own home uh, trying to encourage me to find a way in which those two things come together. And one place they come together is in the history of science and for me uh, now the history of data in particular. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder, too, did your dad know about the nuclear reactor that Kodak had? You know, I don't remember if we ever brought up the nuclear reactor. Uh, one of my, my first real job was at the University of Rochester's Laboratory for Laser Energetics. They had a high school program in which and I, I, was, I did a, a research paper in high school on the nuclear fusion, went to the laser lab to interview somebody and found out that this uh, this program existed and so I worked um, modeling the way that laser pulses would be amplified through these systems. Um, so this is the first time that somebody taught me how to uh, use a computer to try to do calculus that I had not yet really learned to do in school. Uh, but it was a, it was a great um, 
great experience. I'll shout out Steve Craxon, uh, who was the my mentor there and who has uh, continued to be someone who I've been able to talk to over the years. Uh, so I, I didn't know about the – we didn't spend time thinking about the nuclear reactor, but we were – I was hanging around the laser fusion laboratory. And one of these days, they always tell us that fusion is going to be an important energy source for the future. One of these days. Oh, that's really neat. That's a whole other episode. Yeah. I love it. Um, so in your newest book, uh, Democracy's Data, um, it, you examined the 1940 census specifically. Why did you select that year? When I began writing the book – the 1940 census was the most recently available census in which all of the materials were open for researchers or for anyone to look at. So the Census Bureau is takes confidentiality and privacy very seriously. And so it takes 72 years between the time when a census takes place and when all of the records become available. I mean, as people will recall, when they filled out the 2020 census, they, they gave some information. And then took a little bit longer because of the pandemic, but within a little bit over a year, the Census Bureau starts, usually within nine months, the Census Bureau produces counts, statistics, but it very carefully makes sure that no individual data is released. Now, after 72 years, that individual data starts to be released. And so many people who are listening to this podcast, probably either they themselves or someone in their family uh, is doing genealogical work, is doing family history, and so they would also have probably started with the 1940 census. Yeah. Uh, that's now changed because as of April, the 1950 census became available. And so there's a whole kind of a whole new world of, of mysteries to dig into. But for me, this felt like a place in which when I could find a data set that was uh, big, I mean, billions of data points, uh, a kind of proto big data source, one that was uh, consequential is at a moment at which the the New Deal state, the a, a economically interventionist state, was being constructed, and at the same time, a place in which millions of Americans were already looking at this data set to construct their own family and community histories. And so I could speak with them and work with them uh, and try to tell them a different kind of story about these records they're already familiar with. Hmm. Do you know what the logic of the 72-year embargo was for the anonymous data? And, and then why – is there a new time frame now that since they released 1950, is, did they decide that they're going to do different embargo or uh, – No. So the – it's a, this is a, a question. There's a little bit of mystery about okay. this exactly. The A nice story – in fact, one that was that they they just printed in the New York Times because it was uh, one, a story the Census Bureau tells as being possible, and I I will agree it is still possible, is that seventy two years was about the life expectancy of an individual in uh, at the period at which uh, this decision was made. Now, I, again, I like that story. Could be true. It might be like in the ether something about what people were thinking about, but. What seems to be the more plausible story is that it is a bit of bureaucratic uh, circumstance that the in when in 19, around the 1950s, around 1952, when the 1880 census was set to be released, or when, when they were negotiating this, the Census Bureau was in negotiations with the National Archives, which by that point was had only been in existence for little under 20 years, and they were trying to figure out how to hand over these documents and when they would be released or if they should be released. Uh, there had been some new federal legislation about privacy and government records that had been passed, in, uh, I think, in 1950. 
and they essentially negotiated, oh, let's just let it go now. And so that that became 72 years, <laughs> and it kind of set a precedent that then existed. Interesting. And it almost, now it almost went away. So in 1970, there was a great deal of concern. I've recently learned this. There was a great deal of concern about privacy. For We know for all kinds of reasons, people started to be concerned about government invasions of privacy and the way in which the public sector, but especially the government, was snooping in ways that it ought not to do. And so the Census Bureau got very nervous, and they they said, well, technically, when we collect this data, we tell people it's going to be confidential, and we don't put a time limit on it. Mm. So maybe this should never be released. These answers should never be released. And that's that was, in fact, what they asserted. They asked that the National Archives hold on to these materials and never make them available in the future. And the National Archives said, mm, no, I don't think so. I think we'll just stick with this as it is. And they went to the Department of Justice. Department of Justice, the Attorney General said, yeah, this other law means that you can, after 50 years, actually, we could make this available. Uh, it went to Congress. Congress almost passed a law one way or the other and ended up not passing a law. But so as a result, we're, we have this slightly legal murky ground oh, wow. that has established this basic precedent that 72 years is where it is. Hmm. So – what exactly do you look at when you dig into a census? How much data are you talking about? I know you mentioned a billion uh, of data points, but what does it look like? I mean, in 1940, obviously, they weren't uh, putting these things into a computer. So what, what does the data set look like? Is it just reams of paper, digitized files that have been scanned? Or what exactly do you look at? So physically, most of the materials I end up touching are indeed on a screen. They... Are people will often find them in their own family history or genealogical research on a commercial site like Ancestry. For the 1950 census, the National Archives has done a really terrific job of producing, the government producing its own way of accessing these materials. And so I see a digitized copy of what was a microphotographed version of what was a paper sheet. So there's a number of forms, of layers of mediation here. And that then is a, a broad paper sheet, was used, used to be about the size of a newspaper. When I look at it, though, in terms of what I'm seeing on that piece of paper, what I'm seeing is a record of a series of conversations. So at the top right hand of every one of those sheets, there's the name of an enumerator. And that enumerator physically went to a doorstep, knocked on a door, hoped a person would open up, and then had to convince them to divulge information that America wanted to know. So the Census Bureau had a slogan at that point, to know America, tell America. Or they would sometimes make it a little bit more Socratic or uh, poetic. I, I am curious about that data collection. Um, tell me about the question men. How many were there? And uh, how good were they at accurately, I guess, conducting the census of the population back then? Right. So uh, we can think about this in terms of there's a couple of different groups, a couple of different layers. One, these folks that I, I call the question men, they were almost all men, um, were the people who gathered in 1939 in a auditorium of, at the Commerce Department to figure out what the sheet would look like, what questions would be there, what the acceptable categories would be, basically what kind of person the census was going to be looking for, what aspects of personhood would be important to the government at this time. And that changes over time. Indeed, that's one of the things that looking at censuses over time tells you. They they help you to see the values of a country and of a society. They also help you to see what are the pressing political questions of a given moment. And 
that story of those questions, I almost thought I wasn't going to be able to tell. Uh, I didn't think I would be, I would find those resources. It was only at one of my last visits to the National Archives, as I was working through the papers of the director of the census at the time, that I finally found my golden file in which not full minutes, but quite good minutes of this 1939 oh, wow. meeting had been recorded. And I finally could figure out what were these people talking about? What were they considering? What didn't they do? What mm-hmm. did they do? Uh, so that that was a, a find that was very useful. And it, it, it helps point out that while I spent a lot of time looking at these uh, digitized records online, the story only becomes possible. We can only tell the story behind the numbers when we also get time in the paper archives, archives of the, Net, of the Census Bureau, um, archives of the senator who launched an attack on the census in the 1940s and all of the letters written to him by Americans from all over, uh, the archives of other prominent government officials who were involved in the census. And again, oftentimes we look at those records not because we want to know what those prominent officials did, but because they kind of gathered to them the voices of all kinds of other individuals, ordinary citizens who write to their legislators with their ideas, opinions, concerns. And that allows the historian, me, a chance to get a sense of what did people think of this at that time? What did a variety of people think about this at that time? And then the final thing I'll say about that is that um, once I had the material, Colgate allowed me allows me always to, to spend a little bit of money and hire some students to help do some research. And so over the last number of years, I've constituted what I call a history lab in which I hire two, three, four students. We meet once or twice a week. We gather together, and they were crucial to this work. They're they're each named at least once in the book for one of their main discoveries of things that they came up with. And uh, and they allowed me both to, to process these thousands and thousands of letters and then we worked together. We worked together to read the handwriting. We worked together to then try and find those people in the census and translate those two things together to say, like, how did a person who was concerned about privacy when writing to their senator, how did they respond when that enumerator actually came to the door and knocked mm. on the door? And oftentimes you could see forms of resistance. Other times you could see ways in which they thought, oh, actually, this isn't so bad. I will answer these questions. Oh, um, wow. And it's really interesting to be able to put those things together. Anything surprising the students found as they were digging through those records? I mean, they found all kinds of amazing things. Um, so Ethan So, for instance, uh, took it upon himself, this was quite a task, to to look at Hawaii. So Hawaii is not yet a state, um, but Hawaii was a territory. And it was the hotspot in all of the American census documents for finding people whose relation to household, uh, to head of household was partner. And that's because uh, partner, well, it could sometimes be a way of thinking about intimate queer relationships and a way of understanding people make themselves look plausible to the government when they were in um, in intimate relationships that were not heterosexual. Was also just a way for people who kind of lived in marginal circumstances to make themselves legible to the state, to look like someone who could be counted. And so Hawaii was full of work camps, essentially places in which people worked on plantations uh, Often Filipino men, single Filipino men or married Filipino men, but, but living there alone, who would then live together in essentially camp circumstances. And as the enumerators tried to figure out how will I make these these households of just single men all living together make sense, they would often use this partner category as a place to do it. So hmm. Ethan trawled through, can't even imagine how many documents he trawled through counting partners and uh, getting a sense of how they varied through across and throughout Hawaii and then presented that material to me. Wow. 
So do you know how successful they were? Like what percentage of the population actually was included in the census at the time? We have we have some good material or some some good figures to understand that. Now we have better uh, ways of estimating that. The at the turn of the 20th century, the, there's the first kind of serious attempt to quantify what we think of as a, an undercount in the census. And there, the official who did this was a little bit too optimistic and imagined that the census was within 1% of, of uh, where it was. In the 1910s, a group of African-American researchers working in the Census Bureau, in the segregated Census Bureau, so they're working in kind of their own space in the Census Bureau, produced a report that first made uh, very plausible, I mean, very good claims that throughout the 19th century, there had been a serious undercount of African-Americans in the census that was then advanced further by a mathematician named Kelly Miller. The Census Bureau at that point tended to say, "Mm, I don't think so. And then in, after the 1940 census, a uh, a young researcher at the University of North Carolina, a guy named Dan Price, another Dan for our story, (laughs) uh, came in and he took the, the records from the selective service, from the draft for World War II, and compared them to men of similar ages as found in the census, the numbers as found in the census. And by comparing those two sets of data sources, those two data sources, he assumed probably reasonably that the selective service, because it would throw you in jail if you didn't do it, probably was a better count than the Census Bureau, which only pretended it was going to throw you in jail if you didn't do it. (laughs) And by comparing those, he was able to make some inferences. And what he found was that there was a – he estimated about a 3% undercount generally – but uh, 13% undercounted African-Americans. So oh. essentially justified the work of these black researchers from the last 20 or 30 years before that. And following that now, for the last uh, 70 years, the Census Bureau has taken much more uh, active steps both to try to narrow those undercounts but also to more accurately count them. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between the 1940 census and the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II? Yeah, uh, this is this is both a, an important story and one that I think can still be useful to us, to the folks who are making data, the who, folks who are using data, and to us as citizens trying to, to think about how data can and should be used. So the, the Census Bureau began to ask more sensitive questions of individuals over the course of the late 19th and early 20th century. And as it did so, it also started to then make promises that individual data would be held strictly confidential. When you said sensitive data, give me an example. So, I mean, people consider a lot of data pretty sensitive. Um, And so that would include, in the late 19th century, that included a lot of data about individuals' households and families. So where your parents came from, what languages they spoke would be some of that kind of sensitive data, how much education you had is the kind of thing that maybe people don't want to be released. And then uh, very prominently in 1940, which how much was your income? What were your wages? Which was a, a very kind of sensitive information for a lot of folks. But so as they asked more data, they also wanted people to respond honestly. And so they said, this will be held confidential. And in particular, this can't be used by other government agencies. It can't be used to, pay, to decide how much taxes you should be pay. You should be paying. It shouldn't be used to send you into the military. 
Well, war tended to make those promises harder to keep. Mm. And so uh, the Census Bureau, as the war ramped up, found itself becoming more of a purveyor of personal data and not just, as I would call it, a factory of facts. And that some of it it did, it did uh, entirely legally as um, as Roosevelt wanted there to be an arsenal of democracy. He wanted to and mobilize people into American factories, but he was concerned, his administration was concerned about spies and espionage. And so they insisted that anyone who was hired into one of these firms would be an American citizen. Problem is, it's hard to figure out who an American citizen is when not everyone has birth certificates at this point, when social security cards are about three years old. <laughs> and so the Census Bureau becomes an important purveyor of evidence that somebody is a citizen. Uh, people ask the Census Bureau to produce for them a certificate proving they're a citizen, which means the Census Bureau suddenly is under a great deal of pressure to produce thousands and thousands of these certifications while it's supposed to be doing this other statistical work. When America actually enters the war, then the pressure is even greater that the Census Bureau, the officials want to feel patriotic. They want to contribute to this war effort. They want to continue to get funding in the midst of a war, which is drawing all these resources. And so they they basically say, we want to help in whatever way we can help. And that includes producing then special tabulations for the the U.S. government. And so in one of the, uh, one of the worst moves that the Census Bureau has made, it produced special tabulations of uh, showing Japanese Americans as uh, indicated as Japanese race in the 1940 census throughout the West Coast. This is the time when the Roosevelt administration, it's really important to say, without actually any good intelligence suggesting that there was actually any espionage or any real concern from Japanese Americans, decided that Japanese Americans were a threat to American security and and said that folks had to either leave voluntarily or when they didn't leave voluntarily would be shipped off to concentration camps. And so the Census Bureau ended up aiding this by producing fine-grained data that showed the neighborhoods, the areas in which Japanese Americans could be found. Wow. In 2000, the Census Bureau's director, Ken Pruitt, apologized formally for the Census Bureau's um, participation in this. Uh, but it, it is a, a real um, mark against the Census Bureau and one that, it, that they have importantly, spent years trying to find ways to build structures to make it so that sensitive populations won't be subject to these kinds of uh, revelations in the future. What do you think, um, I guess, since the 1940 census to today, I know obviously it's undergone a lot of changes since then. What would you say the biggest changes is? is it in how it's collected or is it in the length of the survey, what we ask? Um, curious as to just the, the largest shift in the census. Hmm. That's a great question. So the, there's a couple I think I could point to. So one big shift has been the move towards self-enumeration. So when I look at these past census records, I'm seeing a negotiation, a conversation between an enumerator, a person they're talking to, and the form. These questions, the question men decided were acceptable. A lot of people now, about 60 to 70 percent of households, now self-enumerate entirely. And even when they talk to, even when a person talks to an enumerator to fill in the form, the enumerator is supposed to write down only what they're told how a person identifies themselves directly. They're not supposed to contradict that. 
So that was intended in part as a way of contradicting um, forms of error, of trying to, to allow there to be a more accurate representation of individuals. It was also, though, importantly embraced by the civil rights community, because then this is part of the, a big shift, is that the Census Bureau, for a long time, one of the things that the census did was it really established white supremacy in the United States. And very formally, uh, it's from the moment at which it was uh, instituted, its purpose was to figure out how to allocate representation. And that allocation of representation was built on an idea that uh, American Indians did not count in the census, that African Americans, enslaved African Americans would only count as three-fifths of a person. It would be used to shore up the power of the American South. But with the civil rights movement in the 1960s and 1970s, that flips. And the civil rights communities find ways in which they can use self-enumeration uh, the assertion of race and the accurate collection of racial data and, eth and ethnic data as a mechanism to actually ensure that communities are counted accurately and that they are represented pop, uh, pop, uh, and they are represented properly. So as a result, the it's it is partly a change in the form, but it's also partly a change in terms of who uses the census data and how they use it in conjunction with things like the Voting Rights Act and other structures that's, that allow now the census data to undo kinds of injustice that previously it helped to, to uphold. The second big change, in terms of anyone who's taken the census in 2020 will recognize, is that they only answered probably about seven questions, and the old form would have been 30-some questions. Mm. So that has been a significant shift that's taken place over time, and that's because uh, of the rise of statistical sampling, in which case now most people only answer a few questions. That allows us to create a full picture of the nation from which then people can be picked and sampled to be a representative sample. And therefore, now every year, the American Community Survey, for instance, only counts a, a small percentage, a few percentages of the entire population, asks them a lot of questions, and can from can from that, in conjunction with the full census, construct a picture of what all Americans are actually thinking or the state of all Americans at a particular moment. So is it like a survey where they're only trying to reach a certain percentage so they can be statistically significant? Like, oh, we've got enough, we can extrapolate. Is that how yeah, they handle it? Exactly. I mean, it, it, so it used to be that the, the full census asked all the questions of everybody. 1940, one of the things that's interesting about 1940, it's the beginning of sampling. So uh, on each census sheet, there would be a special line, there would be a sample line that then would ask a few more questions. And I think of this as the first effort to cheat the, the limitations of space, right? There's only so much real estate on the piece of paper. And so these new probabilistic techniques become a ways in which the question men, who are always greedy for more information, can find a way to cram just a little bit more in. Uh, but once this became a, a viable technique, both because of concerns about privacy, because of concerns about overwhelming people with too many questions, uh, and because of this real concern to try and decrease an undercount, the Census Bureau has produced, has put more and more effort into trying to get everybody to answer just a handful of questions, basic demographic questions, and then use the rest of that energy and money to, yes, create a statistically significant, a representative sample that then can stand in for the rest of us. Oh, interesting. Has Have you spoken with anyone at the census or what do they think of your work? Do you hear from them? I'm, I'm very curious. Have you had any outreach? I I don't know for sure. I, I was very pleased to see a few weeks ago that 
the deputy director of the Census Bureau was reading a copy of my book on his hammock. Um, and he seemed to be enjoying it. <laughs> he didn't throw it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, that that appeared on Twitter. Uh, and uh, But I haven't heard yet All right. any more since then. Well, you've made it to question 13. Um, so try to ask something a little fun here. But, you know, in all of your work looking at the census and, and data in general through the years, I'm curious if you could add one question, what would it be? What is the one thing you think that could be the most helpful? Um, so I'm going to I'm going to steal this from the the from Ireland. OK. They in their most recent census. I think this is amazing. They included at the end of the census form, I think it was at the end. A essentially a large open box in which I think they called it a time capsule. I'm going to call it a time capsule. And they allowed people to explain themselves however they wanted to explain themselves. Like an open response? An open response. Oh, boy. And so people could write an essay. They could draw pictures. <laughs> uh, and so it was – there was no – conception that that open response was going to turn into a statistical tabulation, right? So I could answer this question differently thinking about what kinds of statistics do we need, but I'm going to, for this moment, take advantage of being a historian and think about how the beautiful thing about a census is that it is a place that dignifies every single person. It says that every person deserves to be counted. Every person is a part of the polity regardless of their class, creed, status, and that they deserve to exist in the future, in the story of the nation for hundreds of years to come. And so in that sense, it it would be amazing 100 years from now to look back at these records and find people in their own words explaining themselves, saying, what what was happening in my life at this particular moment? How did I want wow. to present myself? Probably a little bit overwhelming too, but that's exactly the kind of overwhelming a researcher wants is to be able to have access to something like that. And And I would love to be able to see it because it then – would give us a sense not just of what the question men think a person's life should look like, but some glimpse of how all of these different Americans from all walks of life think they want to be represented or think of who they are. Love it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, for listeners, uh, if you're interested in uh, Professor Bauck's newest book, it's Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census and How to Read Them. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to 13 at colgate.edu, and that's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com. <laughs>